I invite you to turn in the scriptures to Romans chapter 8, where we'll read verses 15 and 16. This is page 1122 in the Church Bible, Romans 8, verses 15 to 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Palatophobia, fear of baldness and bald people. Aerophobia, fear of drafts. Porphyrophobia, fear of the color purple. Catophobia, fear of hairy people. Levophobia, fear of objects on the left side of the body. Dextrophobia, fear of objects on the right side of the body. Auroraphobia, fear of the northern lights. Caliprophobia, fear of obscure meanings. Philosophobia, Fear of being seated. Stabis basophobia. Fear of standing and walking. Odontophobia. Fear of teeth. Graphophobia. Fear of writing in public. Phobophobia. Fear of being afraid. Arachibutyrophobia. The fear of peanut butter. <laughs> Genophobia. Fear of knees. And my favorite, hippopotamonstrosis quepidaliophobia, which is naturally the fear of long words. <laughs> well, the website I got these from has a total of 124 phobias listed there. Apparently, modern people love to be afraid. We invent word after word to describe these fears. And some of these are silly, but of course, as we know, there are bigger fears out there. Fears of much more dangerous things than any of these phobias. The Bible tells us there is only one kind of fear that is biblical and good. Proverbs tells us about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that fear, of course, as we know from the rest of Scripture, is not terror, is it? It's more like awe, to be in awe of the Lord God. That is healthy. What is not healthy is when we lose that awe and that proper respect when we become Christians, when we are born of the Spirit, as Robert Haldane puts it, this a servile fear, which is kind of like terror, gives way 
to a filial fear. The fear or awe and respect that a son has for an upright father. We could put it this way. The fear of condemnation gives way to the respect and awe of God that we should have. In 2 Timothy 1.7, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, power, love, and a sound mind. And Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And obviously, therefore, he means biblical fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So the question then becomes this. What kind of fear do we have? What kind of fear do we have? Is it one of the many phobias that we could have? Whereby we are afraid of things in the created order? Is it fear of human beings, fear of man, fear of what human beings could say about us, fear of what they could do to us? Is that the kind of fear we have? Is it fear of Satan and his demons, also created beings? Or is it reverence and awe of the God who is the creator? Well, by framing the question that way, it becomes obvious which one we should have. Right? Why should we have, though, that proper fear of God and not servile terror? We see stories in the Bible, after all. Uzzah touching the ark and dying instantly. Nadav and Abihu offering strange fire in Leviticus 10. God strikes them down. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and dying instantly. What you see in those instances, though, is people who did not have the proper awe of God. The answer to this question, which fear and what kind of fear is it? What characterizes that? That's really getting to the heart of our passage here in Romans 8. As Robert Haldane reminds us, and as we have seen several times in our investigations into adoption, our adoption reminds us of our original state as children of wrath and rebellion and strangers to the covenant of God. Remember, adoption means a transference from one family to a different family. So the first thing we need to remember about this passage is that this transference is one of the main impetuses for why we should have proper biblical fear and not any other kind of fear. The second thing to think about is a difference between the way human adoption works and the way divine adoption works. And again, Haldane helps us. In choosing a son by adoption, this is in the human world, the adopting party has regard to certain real or supposed qualities which appear meritorious or agreeable. 
But God, in adopting his people, himself produces the qualities in those whom he thus chooses. Man can impart his goods and give his name to those whom he adopts, but he cannot change their descent, nor transfer them into his own image. But God renders those whom he adopts not only partakers of his name and of his blessings, but of his nature itself, changing and transforming them into his own blessed resemblance. To put things another way, human adoption usually has reference to some quality that is desired. We see something in someone when we're adopting, and we want to adopt that person because of certain qualities that person has. God's adoption doesn't work that way. God's adoption produces the qualities that he wants in us. As my church history professor said on so many occasions, God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. It's God's love that makes us lovable. The third thing about adoption in this passage is to recognize that in being adopted into God's family, we are inheriting the mantle of being God's people from the Israelites. In the Old Testament, in many places, the scripture calls Israel the son of God. The most famous example, of course, is Hosea 11.1, where God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel, as the son of God by adoption, being called out of Egypt, is what Hosea is talking about, but there's more, isn't there? Because Matthew quotes that very same verse to talk about Jesus being called out of Egypt. So Israel being called out of Egypt is sort of a blueprint for what's going to happen with Jesus. In fact, if you look at the beginning chapters of Matthew's gospel, you'll see that Jesus relives Israel's story. From Egypt to the wilderness, crossing the Jordan River, being baptized, entering the promised land, only Jesus does it without any sin at all. Thus, Jesus embodies true Israel within himself. And so anyone who is united to Jesus Christ is true Israel. When we are united to Christ, we are united to the faithful Israel hyphen son of Hosea 11.1. He is the true son of God, the natural son of God, in whom and united to whom we can have adoption as sons. Whether we are male or female, we have adoption as sons because we can inherit. The fourth thing about adoption in this passage are the privileges and duties which adoption confers on us. And here we can see how much greater the privilege is than of any human family. We, we might imagine being adopted by some hugely important and rich person in the world, and that would come with privileges and responsibilities, wouldn't it? If we were adopted into the British royal family, for example, that would come with privileges and responsibilities. But being 
God's own adopted children, is the highest possible privilege that any human could ever dream of having. There's nothing higher. Not even the angel's status in heaven is higher than what adopted children of God have in principle. Think about that when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say, Our Father. We kind of rush over those two initial words of the Lord's Prayer a little bit too quickly sometimes, don't we? And fail to consider the enormous privilege that Jesus confers on his people by saying, this is how you can pray. You can pray to the creator and the God of the universe as to your father. We can call God our father. Some ancient religions allowed their people to call their deities father. Zeus, for example, in Greek mythology, was called father. In fact, Zeus pater, it became in Latin Jupiter, Jupiter. And that's what that means, Zeus father. But he was cut off, really, from human He was separate from human beings, even though they made him like humans in many other ways. But he didn't have personal relationships with most people. Only those he supposedly became the natural father of, like Hercules. That's not how it is in God's family. As adopted children, we can talk to him whenever, wherever we want to and need to. Our problem is we just don't want to, of course. But if you were adopted into some, to the British royal family, wouldn't you think it a privilege to talk to the person who adopted you? And what a great privilege it is to talk to God the Father. The reason we don't want to is because our sin makes us ashamed. We don't want to talk to God. This is bothersome, and we don't know if he's listening because we can't see him. And these are all obstacles in the way of our prayers. But if you're an adopted son, doesn't that mean that you can come into his presence whenever and be certain of a hearing? Well, that's absolutely what it means. It takes us a while to adjust, though, doesn't it? Adopted children, even in human families, take a while to adjust to their new privileges and responsibilities. So also we adjust. We start to learn about our new adopted father. We start to learn that God's house runs quite differently from Satan's house and family. Adopted children in God's house start to learn how it all works in ways that a child of wrath never could. The bedrock for adoption is all the promises that God gives to his children. He promises that he will never leave them nor forsake them. He won't be like bad earthly fathers. He promises he'll protect us from the evil one. 
He promises he will always love us. He promises grace that will change us. Here's where we need to say a few things about that word Abba. Abba, Father. Abba is close to, but not quite the same as our word Daddy. It's close to that word because it's a term of endearment and does imply a very close relationship. But it's not quite the same because adults use the word Abba as well. Jesus himself calls his father Abba, Father. And and the main reason he does that is to indicate the closeness of the relationship that he has with the Father. The word is only used three times in the New Testament. We already looked at Galatians 4 recently, which is the closest parallel passage to our own, and the word occurs in Galatians 4. And the only other time it occurs in the entire New Testament is on the lips of Jesus himself in Mark 14, verse 36, which is when Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood, and he prays out to his father and calls him Abba, Father. So there are only two relationships in the entire Bible in which anyone can call God Abba, Father. The first is that of Jesus, and the second is that of God's adopted children. Does it ever strike you then that we can talk to the Father the same way Jesus does? That's the kind of privilege we have. When our sonship is compared to Christ's, yes, there are differences, but that's not usually the focus. The focus is on how similar it is to Jesus' sonship. Not how distinct it is, how similar it is. We can call God Abba in our prayers. Now there are two extremes to avoid, and we get very uncomfortable about some of these extremes. The first extreme is becoming so familiar with God that we lose the proper awe that we should have of him. Remember, we are to retain a biblical fear of God. On the other hand, is the servile fear that prevents us from thinking that we can approach the throne of grace at all. Neither is helpful. Now, I think in the Reformed world, we don't have as many people who try to become too familiar with God. That's usually more present in the broader evangelical world, where they get all buddy-buddy with God. We tend to react negatively to that idea and think that the opposite is better, that we should keep our distance. We remember all too well the lessons of the Old Testament when the people of God didn't want to get too close to God or they might get incinerated. But this is one of the big differences, actually, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus Christ has bridged the distance between the Father and us. He's bridged the gap. So when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our sins are covered with his blood, and Jesus has forged by his messianic work, he has forged that bridge between the Father and us, then we don't need to be afraid to approach God. 
we can be like a child to his beloved father. If, and this is a big if, if children have a good relationship with their father, they don't need to have any fear in approaching their father. In fact, I saw a wonderful painting recently where daddy is just coming through the door and the children rush to greet him because he's coming home and they just want to spend time with him. It's very sad when that kind of relationship is not present, isn't it? But we do have that kind of positive relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can be closer without any fear of being incinerated because Jesus makes us pure and clean and because he stands in the gap. As the psalm says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? That is, who can get close to God? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. How do you get that? You get that through grace. You get that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get those things by trying to make them happen. We can only approach God because of Jesus. The last thing we learn about adoption is that God is not only the source of our adoption in making it happen, but he is through the Holy Spirit also the one who makes us aware of our adoption. It's one thing to be adopted. But it is possible, is it not, to imagine a scenario where a person is adopted, but they don't know it. How would they behave if they didn't know that they were adopted? Well, they would continue to behave as if they were not, wouldn't they? It's not as if we could drudge up this awareness on our own either. We cannot manufacture knowledge of salvation or our own assurance of salvation any more than we could manufacture the salvation itself. Both have to be given to us. Now notice carefully how Paul speaks about this testimony when he says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is a joint testimony. We confess our faith before the Father, and the Holy Spirit confesses our faith before the Father as well. And this is how assurance comes to us, a joint testimony before the Father. It's not so much the Spirit testifying to us, although I dare say he lets us overhear, as it were, his testimony at times. But it is the Spirit testifying with us, this Joint testimony fulfills that requirement of establishing everything on the basis of two witnesses. Of course, in the human sphere, two witnesses might still be bribed or intimidated into false testimony, but that doesn't happen when one of them is God himself. Imagine, then, the testimony of God to God that we are adopted Would we need anything else to convince us? Should we need anything else to convince us? Well, there's nothing more certain than the Holy Spirit's testimony on our behalf, is there? What could be more certain, more bedrock, than the Word of God Himself? This is the ultimate in reasons for why we need to have no terror of God. 
No terror of the end times. No terror of judgment. We have adoption. Adoption assumes the forgiveness of sins in justification. Adoption assumes that we have received the Holy Spirit within ourselves. Adoption assumes that we have the righteousness of Christ speaking on our behalf. And as verse 17 will make clear, this means we will inherit God himself. He is our all in all. He is our greatest good. Beside him, everything else shrinks in importance. All those phobias become nonsense. And even the greater fears we might be tempted to pale into insignificance. Let us pray.